Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. My Lord. Thank you, Jesus. He doesn't need me to say anything right now. He'll release me when he's ready. If you came for a show, you pulled in the wrong parking lot. came needing a miracle, you came to the right place. A while ago, I felt that, Pastor, that when we come to the pulpit, we assume that everybody knows who we are. We have people invariably in the auditorium that don't have a clue who you are or who I am. And so that's the pastor of the church, Pastor Philip Locke. And in case you have forgotten, today is your seventh anniversary. Now we know who he is. Who are you? Well, I'm the janitor. <laughs> no, actually, he's the one that cleans up the messes. I filled the office for 27 years, and now they just let me come to church and preach once in a while. Praise God. If, you're, if that bothers you, I'm sorry, but that's, that's what we do here. We spend so much of our time trying to get people going. When we get them going, that's okay. That's all right. Because the Lord spoke to me this week and told me that the most unforgotten group of lost people today is not the backslider, it's the lukewarm. Because they sit on our seats and they worship in our sanctuary and they don't have a clue. Years ago when we began to teach Search for Truth, 
there was a statistic that said 10 million people or 20 million people at that time uh, in America has heart disease. But only 10 million of those people know they have it. The other 10 million are at the greatest danger because they don't know. And so we want to uh, let God loose in this place. I understand the danger of that. I remember one time the Lord got loose in church back in St. Louis and one of the guys kicked the window out of the side of the church building. He got a little too loose in the Holy Ghost, I guess. <laughs> but uh, we need God to get loose in this place. We need him to shatter our protocols and our etiquette, amen, so that he can do what he wants to do. We're glad for all of you that are here. If you're a guest or a visitor, we welcome you in the name of the Lord. I am listening to a book right now by Jason Van Camp, and Jason Van Camp uh, was a Navy SEAL, and he retired from the Navy SEALs in high honors, and uh, he found life too boring, so he went to ranger school and became a ranger, and that didn't satisfy him, so I went to Green Beret and became a Green Beret, and uh, I'm listening to his book called Deliberate Discomfort. It's an incredible thing, but one of the things he talks about is when they train for missions, is they have to find the flow, get in the flow. I could identify with that because that's what we need to do today. And the only way that these trained soldiers get in the flow is when they leave everything else behind and they focus on the mission. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to begin to focus on the mission. And what is the mission? I guess it's not what, it's who. It's every one of you that are here today. You are the mission. I wish there were some apostolics who would not be satisfied just to speak in tongues. You would begin to desire an anointing that would break strongholds, an anointing that would loose those that are bound and bring liberty to those that are bruised. Something more than just a blessing in prayer, more than a tingle on the back of your neck or the, upon your arm, but you would, you would hunger for an anointing from God that would drive you to pray. Because that's what it's going to take to have revival in the end time. Revelation chapter 13. I'm glad that the locks are in Seattle today because she will not be looking at me and her watch while I preach. <laughs> if she is looking at the service online, she's probably going, I can just see her now. Revelation 13, verse 7. Actually, let's go to verse 4. And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, who is able to make war with him? 
And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Don't, don't worry about this in verse 7. The saints are going to be uh, the Hebrew people that will still be in the earth after the church has been gone. Yes, there will be saints, tribulation saints. And they are the Jewish people to whom God will turn to after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 8, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, that being the beast, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I want to affectionately and fearfully preach to you today about the Lamb of God. And I wish you would be seated. Uh, a lot of times we get out and go shake hands and stuff, or we turn around and wave because we do the old COVID-19 wave. I want us to be prayerful throughout the uh, rest of the service today because I know there are people here that are desperate, that need something from God. And uh, I know that God is here to perform whatever you need. Uh, it's not just noise in a Pentecostal service. There's a demonstration, a manifestation of God's power to perform the miraculous. <coughs> As Job's trial was coming to an end, the Bible says that finally God answered him out of the whirlwind. And uh, here is what God said. He said a lot of things, but this pertains to what we're going to talk about in just a moment. Job 38, 4 through 6. And he said to Job, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if Thou hast understanding. I can, I can only imagine there was a pause waiting to see if Job was going to answer. Yeah. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? Job sat in utter silence as the Lord of glory presented him with questions that neither he nor any other man who has ever lived could possibly answer. And as it turns out, there are many unsolved mysteries concerning the creation of God, the foundations upon which his creation rests. And yet we know with absolute certainty that before God laid the foundations of the earth upon which this world rests, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God was firmly fixed in his divine plan and purpose. So before the Lord laid the measures thereof, before he stretched the line upon it, 
upon which the foundations thereof are fastened. I, I love how God puts things in language that we can understand and we can picture. Because we can picture foundations. Amen. And before he laid the cornerstone upon which everything is measured and brought into balance, it was already determined in his mind and in his heart that the Lamb of God would be slain. So without any question whatsoever, the Lamb of God was and is the most important aspect of God's creative and eternal plan for man. That makes the Lamb of God the most important thing in your life. You may have a lot of other stuff going on. You may have a lot of issues that are pressing upon you right now. But I've come to tell you that the Lamb of God is the most important thing in your life. The real tragedy of the Lamb of God, besides the fact that he would be slain in a very horrible and malicious manner, is that he would be slain, he would be killed by his own creation and by the very people that he had come to save. I know too many people that sabotage their own salvation, but I hope you will take some advice today and not do that. If God's talking to you, you better listen. If God's speaking to you, you better hear his voice. Hebrews 12 and 3 says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. But one of the most interesting aspects of this is that while this was God's plan from before the creation of the world, it remained a mystery for 4,000 years. I want you to get that again because I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. Even though the lamb was supposed to be slain and it was determined before he laid the foundations of the world after the creation did come about, it remained a complete and total mystery, shrouded in mystery for 4,000 years. It was not until John the Baptist, in his uh, unique manner and appearance, stepped out of the wilderness and began to preach uh, in the wilderness of Judea that the world heard these words for the very first time. Israel never heard it. Abraham never heard them. Jacob never heard them. Uh, Moses never heard these words. And yet it's written in John 1, 29, Jesus, uh, John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and here's what he said. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Little did they know that John reached up, grabbed a hold of a veil, and pulled down a veil behind which a mystery had been hid for four thousand years in fact they really didn't even understand what he was talking about and yet verse 35 again the next day 
after John stood in two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. In both instances, John used what we call in the English language an intransitive verb. No, I did not remember that from my English class of over 50 years ago. In other words, behold is an exclamation calling attention to something present and important. And John used it to direct their attention, all of their attention, their undivided attention unto Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. It's fascinating to me that the words, the term Lamb of God was never uttered before John the Baptist, this, this magnificent prophet of God, said these things unto the nation of Israel. Little did they know that John was revealing something to them that would be a truth that would be broadened upon throughout the spectrum of time. And so he introduced Israel uh, to the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world, but that did not fit into their narrative of who they thought the Messiah would be when he came unto them. It did not fit into the narrative of their perceived purpose and mission of the Messiah. And so just like it happens to us many times because we have preconceived notions and ideas, the truth goes right by us. The truth goes over our heads. The truth goes around us. And, and it's there for us to receive, but yet we do not receive it because we have come to God with such preconceived concrete ideas of the way we think, we think things ought to be that we do not receive his word. It was overwhelmingly believed on a national scale that when Messiah came that he would save Israel from their enemies, not from their sins. See, I think, and I'm not talking about you because I, I don't know you, but I think a, a lot of people go to church wanting God to save them from their problems. Save me from my situations. Save me from this and save me from that. It's not in their mind that perhaps they really need to be saved from their sins. And when they are, a lot of that junk will probably go away. Interestingly enough, in relation to this, the next time the feet of Messiah will touch this earth, that's precisely what he will be here for, uh, to save Israel from their enemies. But God gave Israel and henceforth the entire world a glimpse of the Lamb of God when Abraham took Isaac to Mount Moriah to offer him a burnt offering unto the Lord, something that we are not unfamiliar with. Genesis 22, 7 and 8. And Isaac spoke unto Abraham, his father. They had traveled three days in Moriah, and they're going up Mount Moriah now. And he says, my father, and he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. Now let me ask everybody here. God will provide who? Himself. 
who is Jesus, I am that I am, has sent you. He is the one God. He's the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. He's Elohim, Adonai, God Almighty, Lord of hosts. There's none beside him. Woo, hallelujah. Now I want you to keep something in mind right now that it uh, was over 500 years after this before the first Passover would take place in Egypt in which the blood of a spotless lamb would save the children of Israel from a despotic pharaoh and from the death of their firstborn and from bondage in Egypt. It is also that which preceded by over 500 years the Mosaic law that would institute a sacrificial system of sacrifices and offerings whose blood would atone for the sins of the Hebrew people. So Abraham was way before his time, but God pulled back the covering a little bit and revealed an eternal truth. God so ordained that it would not be an army that would deliver the children of Israel from that tyrannical king. It would not be an army that would deliver Israel from 430 years of hard bondage. It would be something as innocent and innocuous as the blood of a little lamb. You see, God chose by the foolishness of preaching how can a man with a message change the course of my life? Ask him. He's the one that set this up. Something as innocent as the blood of a lamb would save Israel from Egypt. And so while it appears that the die was set here on Mount Moriah, when Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. We know that the cast was set long before Abraham took Isaac to Mount Moriah. Speaking of the first Passover, Exodus 12 and uh, verse 1, And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto the, all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. We are somewhere in the vicinity of 3,500 years beyond the time that Moses gave these instructions to the children of Israel, and yet we sit here today and every man, every woman, every boy, every girl needs a lamb. I don't know what your uh, faith your mom and dad had or grandma and grandpa, aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters, but you need that lamb. You need a lamb today. 
not just the lamb, you need the lamb of God. Notably, as the people were to prepare to depart from this hostile nation uh, and from an army that could easily, without even working up a sweat, completely annihilate them, they are not directed to uh, gather weapons in which to defend themselves. They are not presented with divinely inspired military strategy or they are not taught tactical field maneuvers. No, their escape from the clutches of 430 years of oppression would require the head of each family to take a little lamb out of the flock. And if you want to break the power that sin and the world holds over your life, you don't need a life coach. You don't need a therapist, and I'm not against therapy and counseling and all this stuff. It's, it's all good stuff, I suppose. But what you need is the blood of a lamb. I know it defies the academics. It defies the most educated. It just confounds every genius in the world that something as simple as the blood of a little lamb could break those dominions and those chains. Verse 4, if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. See, don't worry about your neighbor's lamb, but your lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And ye shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. So the lamb serves absolutely no purpose until you do with it as Moses has instructed you. Just having the lamb in your house is not enough. Just having a Bible on the bedstand is not enough. Just having a membership card to a local church is not enough. you got to do something with the lamb or it will do you no eternal good. They were to kill it. Exodus 12, 22, and ye shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in under your houses to smite you. It is no different with the Lamb of God. While the application is different, the method in which the Lamb of God was slain is different. Just like the first Passover lamb's blood was shed, the Lamb of God shed his blood when he was crucified. 
It is equally important that his blood be applied according to God's instructions. Well, I just was told to just believe that Jesus is my Savior. Look, you can have the lamb, but until you apply his blood, you have to apply the blood of the lamb in order for your sin to be covered. So how do we apply the blood of the Lamb of God that was shed 2,000 years ago? Obviously, we don't do that in a literal sense, but as the blood was applied to the two doorposts, which we call a jam, uh, and then to the lintel, the blood of Jesus is applied when you repent of your sins. I mean legitimately, really, godly sorrow, Knock down, drag them out. God, I'm sorry for everything I ever thought, I said, I've done. I'm sorry for who I am, who I've hurt, who I've destroyed, who I've betrayed. And the blood will be applied. Then when you are baptized in water in the name of Jesus Christ, then the blood will be applied there as well. When you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. That's why you, they applied the blood to the lentil and not the threshold because the Spirit of God comes down and the blood of Jesus is applied to your life as well. So Egypt being a type of sin, Israel's exodus certifies that nobody escapes the penalty or the repercussions or the consequences of sin without the blood of a spotless lamb being properly applied to their life. But why the blood? You know, if there's one question we need to stop asking God, it's why. I'm, I'm included. Now, I've asked God a lot of things and he's answered me, but very seldom does he answer my whys. But he gives us an answer in this case, and it's his sovereign decision to have declared this and created this. Leviticus 17:11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I, yeah, bro, I knew that'd get you excited. <laughs> his feet are not even touching the ground right now. He says, I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Now, right about now, the devil's cringing. The, the hair on the back of his neck is standing straight up because he's listening, hearing somebody that's talking about the blood. He hates it when we talk about the blood. We began pleading the blood over this service hours ago. He didn't like it then. And he doesn't like it now. You know why? Because nothing can get through the blood. You got a problem with demon spirits? Pray a bloodline around your house. Go inside, play a blood, pray a bloodline around you. Pray a bloodline around your family. Because nothing gets through the blood. I don't know how much English the devil understands or knows, but I know he understands this. I plead the blood of Jesus against you. Yeah. Hebrews 9.22, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, 
And without shedding of blood is no remission or forgiveness. Herein is why God preordained the slaying of the Lamb of God not only before he laid the foundations of the world, but millenniums before he ever made man from the dust of the ground. Hebrews 10 and 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. So although God instituted the shedding of blood within the Mosaic law, and they practiced that for somewhere around 1,500 years, and it was for the purpose of atonement. Uh, it is only by the blood of the Lamb of God are their sins permanently and eternally atoned. All those 1,500 years, the blood of the Lamb and the burnt offerings and the sin offerings only uh, stopped the judgment of God. But the blood of Jesus said, okay, I, I've taken care of that now. Hebrews 9 and 11, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered, say it, himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 23, it was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as a high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now... Once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. <clears throat> the Lamb of God. Now, while the mystery of the Lamb of God remained uh, hidden from Israel and the world for the first 4,000 years, unfortunately and sadly, it is still hidden from the Jewish people today. Pastor's been talking about that on Thursday nights. Blindness in part have happened to Israel, so now we're 6,000 years from the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, and the children of Israel still do not understand. They have not received the revelation of the Lamb of God. Thankfully, uh, I can uh, promise you that is about to change very, very soon. Prove that I want to read from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 8. And in that day, or in that day, shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David. And the house of David shall be as God. There's a lot of stuff in here just absolutely incredible, mind-blowing, that we don't have time to really stop and go through. But uh, I want you to see that he that is feeble among them in that day shall be as David. Ooh, it, man, that, that just gets me my motor revved. 
even the weak and feeble in that day, they're going to be like David. I don't know if you know anything about David, but he was a warrior. Amen. And the house of David shall be as God and the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me, me, whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And he shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadad-Ramon in the valley of Megiddo. And why is this even important to this message today? I, I, I told my wife that the hard part about preparing for today was knowing what to cut out and what to leave out uh, because there was just too much information to put in one message without... Uh, abusing my time and yours. The account of Israel's departure from Egypt reveals that they did not mourn uh, as the Egyptians mourned at the death of their firstborn. When the destroyer or the death angel came through and killed all the firstborn in every house, Israel did not mourn with the Egyptians. Uh, while the Egyptians mourned, the Hebrew people were rejoicing as they were walking through blood-stained doorways on a path that would lead them out of Egypt, out of bondage, and out of oppression. So while the Egyptians mourned, Israel rejoiced at what God was doing because their firstborn were alive and well because of the blood of the lambs that were applied to the doorways. Verse 12 says, And the land shall mourn every family apart. And this is still... Zechariah, the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart. The family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart. And the reason this is important is because uh, you are responsible for working out your own salvation. And so, Israel will not just go through a period of national regret and mourning. So everybody else is doing it. I guess I will go ahead and join the religious trend here that's going on in my nation. But every family, every family will mourn. There will not be one Jewish family in Israel that will not mourn. Their wives will mourn. Uh, sometimes wives are, are, are not as connected to their husband's ministries uh, as they might ought to be, but not here. No, the wives will mourn. Every man, woman, boy, and girl will mourn uh, over him that they pierced, over the Lamb of God. And by the time this occurs throughout the land of Israel, they will have rebuilt the temple. We hear a lot about that over the last several years. They will have reinstituted live sacrifices and offerings according to the Mosaic Law and according to Talmudic tradition. 
They will be intimately at that time familiar with what it means to sacrifice a little lamb in order to atone for their sin. I've never seen it done. I don't care to see it done. Uh, they have not seen it done for, for thousands of years. But ladies and gentlemen, Zechariah said, by the time that they see the Lamb of God, who and as he is, they will have seen lambs brought to the slaughter to atone for their sin. They will be intimately familiar with what it means to take a little innocent, helpless lamb and sacrifice it upon an altar. A female sheep is called a ewe. And they're very caring mothers to the point that they form deep bonds with their little lambs. Each mother can recognize her lambs by their bleats alone. So they can be in a large herd, and that little lamb can bleat 50 feet away, 100 feet away, and that mother knows exactly where her little lamb is and how to get to it. Each mother has this bond, this, this unmistakable bond with the lamb. And when uh, they cry out in pain, a lamb of any age cries out in pain, they secrete uh, uh, the stress hormone, cortisone, and uh, cortisol, and uh, in any kind of a stressful situation. Have you ever heard a lamb? They, they sound kind of funny when they cry out, you know, in, in danger or in pain. And I'm not going to try to imitate one. I know you're on edge of your seat and bated breath. Uh, no. Uh -uh. I, I have enough embarrassment and humiliation in my life. I don't need any more. So this newfound familiarity with these little lambs will only serve to intensify and heighten their grief, their bitterness of soul when they finally, the veil is removed, the blindness is taken away, and they finally discover that the Jewish people, their ancestors, are guilty of crucifying the Lamb of God. They will understand more about it at that time. The slaughter of the Passover lamb takes place in the courtyard of the temple, some distance from the altar. But that's where the sacrifice of the Passover lamb would be slain. The blood of the Passover lamb is then collected by a priest and it is collected in a gold or silver cup that is rounded at the bottom so that it cannot be set down without it being turned over. That's the reason why it's rounded. They have to hold it in their hand. The exact procedure was a little confusing and ambiguous to me, but the best that I can tell, uh, the priest will gather and stand in a line from where the lamb is slain in the courtyard, and they will form a line all the way into the brazen altar. And the priest that collects the blood will pass it to the first priest, who will pass it to the next priest, who will pass it to the next priest. And it will go down the line, pass from priest to priest, until it reaches the priest that is standing closest to the altar that is most likely the high priest. The lamb at that time would be hung on special hooks and skinned. If you think 
that Passover was just a casual observance to Israel. Uh-uh. If you think they were to observe that every year just nonchalantly, apathetically, oh, another Passover. No. It was graphic. It was bloody. It was meant to remind them that you stood in the safety of your houses and were safe from the destroyer. It's meant to remind them, to shape them, to intensify their, their emotions. It had a divine purpose for them every year that this was celebrated. The slaughter of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was far more cruel than that. Far more inhumane than the killing of any Passover lamb that was ever killed. Not only that, his blood was not passed in a gold or silver goblet from priest to priest. His blood was literally strewn from the courtyard where he was scourged all the way to Golgotha where he was crucified upon a cross. I think we live in a world that doesn't really take this very seriously because we've heard about the, the death of Jesus Christ all our lives to the point that I don't need to hear it anymore. I already know the story. You may recall when the movie came out, The Passion of the Christ. Uh, we watched The Passion of the Christ. I have not watched it since. You do not watch that for entertainment. You do not gather in front of your television with a bowl of popcorn and a glass of soda and watch the passion of the Christ. Not that I'll never watch it again, but you don't watch it unless you're prepared for your soul to receive something from God to move you. When Israel finally discovers that Jesus Christ was and is the Lamb of God, it will drive them to their knees. John saw the Lamb. He saw him like no other person had seen him. I would love to give a, a summative detail here, but Again, uh, we just can't do that. I mean, he saw the lamp. If you look at Revelation chapter 1, my goodness gracious, how he saw Jesus like never seen him before. But now in the fifth chapter of Revelation, he sees him again differently than he had ever seen him before. You know, when the presence of God comes in, it's not, oh, that's just God. What? Oh, that's just God. You know what? I wish God would shake you out of your shoes today. There's some apostolics. I wish God would shake you out of your shoes today. I wish you would dance around this auditorium. I wish God would move on you in a way that would move you. In the first verse of chapter 5, and I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book. Written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. A book sealed with seven seals. Due to the flexible writing material of that day, such as papyrus and parchment paper, 
important documents or important writings would be rolled up and tied with a string and sealed with a lump of clay or melted wax by the person and with the signet of the creator. This seal would serve two basic purposes. First of all, it would authenticate the document. Secondly, it would ensure that the document would remain unread until it was opened by the person or persons to which it was sent. So John sees this book. And he knows that it must be very important for God to be holding it, number one. But he's holding it in his right hand. Significant and symbolic of his power. He's holding this book in his right hand. Now, Isaiah saw a similar vision. He was caught by the seraphims and the angels and all kinds of stuff. John focuses in on the book. Something that we need to learn to do. Focus in on the book, the word of God. And so he knows this book is important and he sees that it is sealed with the signet of its author or creator. But this book is like no book he's ever seen before because this book has seven layers and each layer has its own seal. Most scrolls have one seal, open it up, that's it. They have many pages, but one seal. And so with his interest now drawn to this very unique book, John is overcome with an intense desire to know what in the world could be written in this book. What is in this book? that is so important to contain seven seals and be held in the right hand of God as he sits on the throne. And he is so hungry to know what is written therein. Verse 2, he says, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. I mean, look around you. There's angels, there's God, there's the four and twenty elders. I mean, and you can't find anybody up here that's worthy to open the seals of this book. I mean, when they look from one end of the universe to other, in the earth, under the earth, left, right, up, down, no one was found worthy to open the seals of the book. It says in verse 3, no man in heaven nor in earth neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look therein. So suspended in, in animated suspense now, John sees a strong angel. I don't know what that means. I don't know if angels lift weights or body build. I don't know if some are short or tall, but he said this angel was strong. I could tell by looking at him. He was a strong angel. Listen, don't send me no weak angels. Only send the strong ones. But let me tell you right now, the weakest angel, stronger than any devil. So don't you worry about it. Don't you fret. In fact, 
I have in my mind, God's going to say to the, the smallest, weakest angel that's been set on the sideline all the millenniums that come here, I want you to go bind Lucifer and cast him into the bottom. Me? You want me to do it? Yeah, I want you to do it because you are a thousand times stronger than he will ever be. And the strong angel proclaimed with a loud voice, who is worthy? Well, nobody is worthy to open the book. That's what it was concluded. It was divulged to John that nobody was worthy. And John has an immediate response. Verse 4, I wept much. I mean, of everything that he is seeing, he focuses on this and begins to weep profusely. Because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold. There's that word again. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. John began to wipe the tears from his eyes with great relief that somebody was found worthy to open the seals of the book. Verse 6, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors. And if you're wondering what happens to all your prayers, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. John saw a lamb, but not just a lamb. He saw a lamb as it had been slain. Come on, Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection. He said, okay, Thomas, I know you don't get it. Here, put, the, put your uh, finger in the nail print on my hands. He still had the nail print in his feet. Come on, here's my side. Still got the hole in the rib side. Go ahead. That's what it's going to take for you. But John doesn't see uh, a Jesus standing there whole with a robe on. He sees a lamb as it had been slain. You see, that's the lamb that God wants us to preach to everybody. You see, this is very important to the narrative because the lamb that John saw could have been pristine and whole, but he wasn't. He saw the lamb just as it looked. When they took him down off of the cross, when Christ's beloved followers 
removed Jesus from the cross, his body was pale. It was limp. It was a bloody, mutilated mass of flesh and bone. He was virtually unrecognizable. He didn't look anything like the regal savior that they knew him to be. And now more than, it was more than 700 years before when Isaiah saw a similar image. He saw the lamb that was slaughtered. He described him as a lamb that was led to the slaughter. John's now seeing the lamb as it was slain. He's seen just as Isaiah described him. And this perplexed me. I mean, I was perplexed by this. I didn't get this out of the book. I didn't get this off the Internet. I didn't get this from Google. This is perplexing me now because the elders said, Hey, don't cry, John. The lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David hath prevailed to open the book. Then why didn't John see the lion of Judah? Why didn't he see the root of David? Why, when he turned and, and, and saw the image of the one who was worthy to open the seals of the book, why did he see a lamb that was slain and not a lion of the tribe of Judah? My gosh. So naturally, I begin to seek the Lord concerning that. And... Um, the conclusion of this message is what the Lord revealed to me. Matthew chapter 26, 52, 53, very uncomfortable passage of scripture to read because it's the introduction to uh, his crucifixion. He is at the Garden of Gethsemane. They come to take him. Then Jesus said unto him that Peter put again thy up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. Give me as many as I ask for. Why do I do that? And so Jesus this most critical hour of his life would not let his disciples defend him and he would not release the angelic host who no doubt stood armed and ready to descend upon Christ's enemies at a moment's notice. Instead, he submitted himself to his captors, to the Sanhedrin, and he did so knowing full well what they were going to do to him. Uh, and so with Peter's sword back in its sheath and the heavenly host now commanded to stand down, the Lamb of God was hated, was brutalized, he was abused, was tortured, tormented, he was mocked. Would you, wouldn't you hate to be one of those soldiers that mocked Jesus and stand before him in judgment? Oh, yeah, every knee shall bow. Wouldn't you hate to be in that position? But because 
the host of heaven was made to stand down and resulted in him being nailed to the cross. And so it became clear to me. And while the Lamb of God stood dumb before his shears, the Bible says, it was only fitting that it would be the Lamb of God that would open the seals of this book, that would release the four horsemen of the apocalypse and introduce this world to seven years of great tribulation. Yeah, you do. I didn't say anything then, but I'm going to say something now. I didn't speak up then, but I'm going to speak up now. I held heaven back then, but I'm going to release heaven now. It's only fitting that that lamb that was silent before his accusers will be the one that will break the seals of the book. My God. My God. My God. Isaiah foretold that he would be led to the slaughter. But he also told how the Lamb of God would retaliate. Now, I just feel in the Holy Ghost I need to say something because the only God that's preached today is a God of love. That's the only God that's preached today. God just loves you so much. not going to let you go to hell. Yeah, God's a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. And his love will not interfere with his justice. So Isaiah said in 63 and 3, I've trodden the winepress alone. Who do you think that's talking about? And of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me. And my fury, it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury. And I will bring down their strength to the earth. Did the world really think that they would kill the Lamb of God and there would not be earth, take, earth shaking and eternal consequences for such an act. Romans 12, 19 says it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. My God. So I'd like to, I'm very, I'm almost finished, so just bear with me a few minutes. I'd like to jump to Revelation 6, verse 12, where the sixth seal is opened. He says, I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell under the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, and she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed, musicians, you can come ahead to the platform and worship team. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together in every mountain, every mountain, every mountain and island 
were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men, I just heard yesterday, Jeff Bezos is now up to $200 billion. Jeff, my friend, if you're still alive when this happens, I have a message for you. And every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, who in the world prays for a landslide to fall on them? But that's what they will do. They will pray, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? My God. My God. And we're still playing church. We're still playing around with God. We haven't really received the message of faithfulness yet. We miss church as much as, some people go to church as much as they go to the dentist. If you told me that Thursday night they're giving out root canals in church, bless God, I'd still want to be here. Because that's what the faithful do. And I'm going to tell everybody here in the fear of God, if you think you can miss church and still be caught up in the rapture or be saved when they close your casket, you are reading a different Bible than I am because the word of God said to those that had the pounds and talents, well done, thou good and faithful servant. There's a lying spirit going around and it's infecting apostolic people making you think you can be apathetic, lukewarm, cold, don't pray, don't go to church, unfaithful to God and you're still saved. I come against that spirit in Jesus' name. I bind that spirit in Jesus' name. If you'd stand with me. After the Lamb of God opens the seals of the book, he is mentioned many times throughout the book of Revelation. This is not, of course, a coincidence or an accident. You go check it out. Mentioned many times. The Lamb of God that was slain, of whom John saw in the midst of the throne, appears all throughout the book of Revelation. I just want to cite uh, a few examples. Revelation 14 and 10. We'll skip 9. No, we won't. Verse 9, the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture, into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Revelation 12, 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. 
and they loved not their lives unto death. Revelation 13, 6, and he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell there, dwell in heaven and was given unto him to make war with the saints and overcome them and power was given him over all kindreds, tongues and nations and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him all, everybody, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 15, 3 and 4, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name, for thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Revelation 17, 14, thee shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. Yeah, he looks like he's broken, but he can still fight. He looks like he can't hold himself up, but trust me, he can. They will make war with the Lamb, the Lamb shall overcome them. Why? For he is Lord of hosts and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen. And what? Faithful. I love to preach about the Lion of Judah, or the Lion of the tribe of Judah, but today the message is about the Lamb. And if from Revelation chapter 5, the line of the tribe of Judah is mentioned by the elder. You can go throughout the rest of the book of Revelation and you will not find it mentioned. But what is mentioned over and over and over again is the Lamb of God that was slain. The Lamb of God that was slain. The Lord brought a verse of Scripture to me will share it with you, and in a moment we will open this altar. You need to come and you need to come and get delivered from the spirit of Antichrist. Say, so, oh, Bishop, did you say that? Oh, yes, I did. The spirit of Antichrist was working in John's day. He even said so. How much more do you think it's working now? It is lulling the redeemed of God into a state of slumber and spiritual stupor. And some of you need to come and get delivered of that spirit and have the scales taken from your eyes so you can once again see the truth of God. And what the Lord brought to me was Matthew 21, 44. Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it shall, or it will grind him to powder. You see, we're going to kneel on the stone. We want to put a pad down before we do. We want a soft place to land when we're uh, attempting to get right with God and shake off the spirit of the world and the spirit of apathy. We, we want to be comfortable in doing this. That's really what attracted me to Jason Van Camp's book, Deliberate Discomfort. Because they have a slogan that they say repeatedly. He said that 
if we sweat in peace, we will bleed less in war. And so they'd run an exercise one day. These people are, I mean, they are fanatical about this. They, they'd run this exercise 24 times. But on the 24th time, Jason's mind wandered, and when they, he went around a corner and he backed up, there was a, an enemy uh, uh, combatant. Because his mind had wandered, he backed up, and in a real-life situation, he would have got the man behind him killed. And everybody knew it. So after it was done, they're, they're talking about what happened, and he is, he's saying how his mind wandered. And uh, uh, he said, we need to run it again. They said, look, man, we've run it 24 times. We're exhausted. He said, no, we cannot finish the day on a failure. Henceforth, I'd rather sweat in peace And die in battle. So they ran it again. Got it perfectly. You need to fall on the rock. There's things that just keep pounding you and coming back to you. You need to be broken. Just like the nation of Israel will be broken. You need to be broken at an altar. That's the only way those strongholds will crumble and only way you can leave the house of God today completely free from those things. But if you don't fall on the Lamb, somewhere, someday, somehow, fall on the Lamb and be broken, the Lamb will fall on you. Broken spirit and a contrite heart, God said, I will never despise. You come broken and contrite, we'll put the pieces back together before you leave. But right now, you need to come broken and contrite. And you need to bow before me because I am the Lamb of God that shed my blood for you. And only I can save you. You cannot save yourself. The altar's open to anyone that needs to come. Anybody wants to come. Say, well, I'm saved. Well, good for you. So am I. Unfortunately, this this stinking body I live in, this stinking flesh that I'm incarcerated in, it's still, it's still lusts after things and it, it still is overcome sometimes with pride and it's still overcome with temptation. I wish I could fix everything in an altar today and it's good for the rest of my time, but tomorrow I'm going to have to find another place to pray. I'm going to have to find another altar to, to, to lay myself on. I'm going to find, find another lamb tomorrow morning somewhere in, in my prayer closet that can help me again as I venture out into another day.
You may not be able to kneel. I understand I have a hard time with my knees too, so the front rows are open for you that would like to come and sit. And God will honor that. Ha! He will honor that. He'll honor if you sit up here. He's not going to honor it if you stay back there. Come on, they're passing that blood from priest to priest. Who do you think that blood was shed for? Who do you think died to shed that blood? What do you think he did it for? It's not willing that any perish, but that all would come to repentance. He said, before I formed the foundation of the world, the lamb is slain. Because I know you're going to need my blood. You're going to need my blood to cleanse you and wash you and blot out your transgressions. What we need today is the blood. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, he'll win your battles, but right now, he wants to wash you clean. He'll fight your battles, but right now, he wants to cleanse your soul. He wants to sanctify you with his blood. Right now, he wants to break some dominions and some strongholds that have a hold of you. It may not be pretty. It may not be the, the favorite message that we all want to hear, but it's what God wants declared to every nation in this world. He didn't say tell them about the lion. He said tell them about the lamb. He didn't say preach to them about the lion by the root of David. He said preach to them about the lamb. Tell them about the lamb. Come on, some of you need a renewing. Some of you need a shaking. Oh, hallelujah. I'm not talking about speaking in tongues. I'm talking about God shaking you from the top of your head to the sole of your feet. I'm talking about God resurrecting something in you that used to be there. Reviving something in you that used to be there. Rekindling a fire used to burn but the fire's gone out reviving that burning that joy that fire that desire to pray that desire to fast that desire to go into the secret place
What an awesome presence of the Lord is in this place. Sis, put it on him. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We're just going to leave you to do what you're going to do. You're dismissed. Let whatever God's going to do with this altar continue. In Jesus' name, God bless you.